0: Tales
1: too Good evening, children of the night. Come on into the cabin and settle in. I was just checking my Edgar Allan Poe day planner and see that I was off by a couple of days with the Hugos. They're being announced in mm, two days, not whatever I said last week. So I jumped the gun a bit with that. I would like to give a special thanks to Dr. Amy H. Sturgis for being available to accept the Hugo Award on our behalf. So should we be the recipient of the award... She'll be the one that narrates our acceptance speech just like she has narrated stories for us in the past. Many of the first dozen episodes of our podcast included stories narrated by Dr. Sturgis. Thank you, Amy, should you grace the stage of the ceremony or not. We appreciate you being there on behalf of Tales to Terrify. In the meantime, I'm about a third of the way through Gary Wood's abomination, and so far it's a solid historic horror I'll give you my thoughts once I've got all the way through it, but it reminded me of something else that I wouldn't mind giving a shout-out to. A few years ago, someone recommended to me J.P. Moore's Toothless, which is also historical horror. It was available from patiobooks.com and still is. It's 24 chapters that you can listen to for free, and the print or ebook will cost you a few bucks. I really enjoyed it. Link will be in the show notes to J.P. Moore's page for Toothless and the Patio Book link. Should you like to hear it read? Which is what I did and kicked the author a few bucks for such an enjoyable story. Let's get on to the fiction you'll be hearing tonight on Tales to Terrify. First up will be a story from Chris Caps. He is an independent author, and I have put a link to his Amazon author page in the show notes. He also runs the blog at puppetsonthewall.blogspot.com. He has a few books for sale, ranging from the post-apocalyptic Ebon the Waste series, including its third installment, the existential horror novel, Our War with Molly Nathak. He is a huge fan of weird fiction sci-fi and horror. He lives in the tiny city of Carbondale in Illinois, and if I remember right, that corner of the state is known as Little Egypt, but why it's called that is a matter of some debate for another podcast. Let's hear Chris Caps. Don't Show Your Face to the Sky. It had been six years since he had been found guilty of murder through inaction and six years living in this hellhole under a terminal house arrest. Outside his opulent home complex, he could see from a belfry window the rain pattering down on the grass, jostling it with the wind in the wild brilliance of a quickly growing storm. As he sat in his rocking chair from the window, he watched the sky open a bottomless torrent on the grounds all around him. Cormac Pigeon watched the garden breathed in the wet air as it wafted through his open window. He was a prisoner in his own home. Since his execution date, he had arranged everything he needed. Being rich had its advantages. Rather than going out into the world, Cormac had found his own ways of living as a forgotten relic of another time. The means of execution for Cormac were neither cruel nor direct. The Hand of God orbital platform had been launched fifteen years ago amid mixed applause and jeers from the public finally ready to accept it. Execution was now streamlined, inoffensive, and out of mind. A simple particle stream fired from the orbital platform would be sent down and into the body of the offending party as they made themselves visible to the cloud-piercing cameras high above. Indoors, beneath the extreme insulation of his home, he was safe. It was a comfortable loophole all too familiar to the public. Cormac had finally given serious thought to the concept years after it was implemented when he was put up on charges of negligent homicide. The details of the case were trivial. An employee had died as a result of mislabeled medication. Eventually, the responsibility climbed the ladder all the way to him. The official justification was simple. The men responsible for hiring the men responsible for mislabeling the pills should never have themselves been hired. The judge was kind enough. He had said Mr. Pigeon, with his vast resources, could easily live out the rest of his days behind closed doors quite comfortably. A shut in to be forgotten by the world with the toys he had acquired in life, and of course the Scotch. Cormac spent most of his days in the indoor peacock garden feeding the birds and strolling along the small glowing path, waiting for the end to come. Friends and family members visited him regularly, talking to him about the outside world and doing their best to keep him comfortable and sane. The opulent conditions of his house certainly didn't deter old friends from making regular appearances on weekends the neighborhood around Cormac's mansion quickly fell into disrepair the nearest house one quarter of a mile east of his own had even seen national headlines as it emerged that an illegal velocitrops fighting ring had operated there federal agents came in and scrubbed the site clean capturing the abused monstrosities and carrying them away needless to say that house had been on the market ever since Still, these things mattered very little to Cormac as he sat taking in the old droning of his tech operas and watched with disinterested amusement the images that followed him on his eight-foot wall screen as he strolled through the gardens. But it was one night in June when Cormac found himself idly sitting, looking out the window, listening to an old tech opera that he had spotted a figure pushing through the mist onto his property. Unexpected company. If they were friends, they hadn't announced their presence. If they were burglars, they would surely find it impossible to breach the poly-lead door of his mansion or the three-inch-thick one-way view metal windows. As he watched, he leaned forward pensively and waved his hand over the singing Victrolin, filling the room with a dead silence save for the pattering of raindrops on the windows. In the distance, the roll of thunder could be heard as Cormac stood and grabbed his binoculars, looking out at the woman running towards his front door. she wasn't dressed for the weather, instead made up for the sort of parties he used to host at his opulent mansion. But unfortunately, she was years too late. She kept looking around wildly and yelling. He strained his ears to listen. Help? he repeated. With her hair drenched and clinging behind her, she once again looked down the path and Cormac followed her gaze to the edge of his estate. There he saw it, the atrocity. It snarled, rearing back on its haunches and bellowed in a flash of lightning with its jowls trembling pendulously beneath its cheeks and its massive jagged teeth exposed, and in that moment he knew what had happened. It had come back from a time long before. The velocitrops had been designed to remember. People, places, the scent of blood, the location of a battle once lost. It remembered it all in its primitive manufactured brain. In the war, the creatures had occasionally escaped, returning to the fighting grounds to once again challenge the machines that had defeated them. To meet a velocitrop's meant death had signed a contract, either theirs or yours. It was clear this monster had escaped its tormentors, likely killing them, and made the long, slinking journey back to hunt prey and vindicate itself. Cormac had only seen a sight such as this in the late-night horror shows, Typically, the woman would be seen stumbling and falling as the creature closed in, turning to crawl backwards helplessly as it descended on her for the kill. This was not the case. Almost immediately, this woman ran to his car and, upon finding it locked, smashed the window with a rock and climbed in. "'She won't find much useful in there,' Cormac said helplessly as the velocitrops circled the car. It was too large to actually fit in the window.' but it would surely find a way in soon enough, either by smashing the windshield or tearing through the door with its massive jaws. He would have to act quickly. He picked up the telephone and dialed for the police. "'How may I be of assistance?' a polite woman on the other end asked after a single ring. "'This is Cormac Pigeon,' he said, draining his glass of scotch nervously. "'There's a woman outside my house, trapped in a car. There's a velocitrops. "'Is this call being made from your current address?' The woman said professionally. In the background, Cormac could hear typing. She continued, As you know, your estate is quite near the county line, and there is currently an inter-county border dispute. We cannot send armed police into your area. Pitton County would consider encroachment by this jurisdiction an act of war. Were you not at the last town hall meeting? What's the number for Pitton County, Sheriff? Cormac asked, glancing out the window to see the creature charge the car and hurl its hulking head into its side. Now, please! Have you been living under a rock? You're not going to get any help from them. Your land is currently in neutral territory. No police will dare enter that zone until the border transition is approved by the governor's office. Your best bet is to call some friends to help you resolve this. Best of luck. Cormac slammed the phone into the receiver, clenching his eyes shut. This was it. This was how they were finally going to get him. He opened the closet and grabbed his long robe and put it on over his house clothes along with a pair of slippers. His coat and boots had been thrown away long ago. From his desk drawer he considered his twelve-shooter. The bullets therein would be too small to ever penetrate the fleshy hide of the velocitrops, but it would make the creature mad enough to follow him if he managed to get more than three steps into the yard. He took it and put it in his robe pocket and shortly afterwards found himself standing at the massive front door out there. He knew he would be cut down by the hand of God the moment he walked out into the stormy night, but maybe he could help. It was no longer time to be Cormac the hunted or Cormac the idle player of music. It was time to act. He rolled the cylinder of his 12-shooter and shoved the massive swinging door out. It was incredible, the things he had forgotten about the outdoors, the smell of grass grown wild without care, filled his lungs. The sound of rain falling like champagne filled his ears and tickled his nose like confetti. He forgot everything for only a second before the velocitrop snorted and turned glaring down at him. Cormac held out a tiny pistol and fired. Run to the house! He screamed as he sprinted out into the lawn. Memories of his life danced through his head. Here he was a child playing cowboys and Indians with his mother. There he was a simple clerk ferrying messages through a vast labyrinth of vacuum tubes. He remembered the trip he had taken with his fiancée to orbit around Mars and the lonely journey home. And he remembered the thing he had done, killed through negligence. High above the planets, Cormac Pigeon's image was spotted by the Hand of God platform. In the vast coldness of space, the infrared satellite cameras were detailed enough to pick out the individual hairs on Cormac's head and project his expected movements with impossible accuracy. Deep within its rotating cylinder, the process began. It fired a tiny jet of projectiles as uniform as a bullet to disperse into a high-velocity cloud of mass the size of a grapefruit by the time it hit Cormac's head. Deep within the machine, Cormac's records were updated with the cold swiftness of a computer. Below, Cormac watched as the velocitrops turned on him and began its sprint. From the car, the young woman hurtled quickly to the house in a flash. She would be saved. There was that, at least. The door began closing automatically behind her as she watched from inside, the light from his home vanishing into a sliver of memory like a halo behind her. She watched. Cormac eyed the creature in his soaked bathrobe as it leaped. There was a gut-wrenching sound as it toppled him, and then it suddenly got lighter with a sickening splatter. When Cormac awoke, it was to the woman pulling at his arm— He was in the middle of the wreck to Velocitrop's remains, and he stood dusting the pieces from him and shivering in the rain. What happened to it? She asked as he pulled him up. Murder, he said, looking at the prodigious carnage all around him. He chuckled. Murder, by negligence. Who are you? She asked, with thunder resonating in the distance. I'm... Cormac. fluttered his eyes as a grin broke out from ear to ear. He looked up at the sky, bleeding, harmless, crystal-clear drops all over him. I'm dead. That was Chris Capp's Don't Show Your Face to the Sky, as read by me. I have to admit, I poached that story for my own narration because I liked it so much. In the days prior to Philip and Scott being much more in charge of the stories coming into the show... Any story with a science fiction or futuristic theme was a tough sell to me, because I like that genre so much. This one seemed pretty cool, so I hope to hear more from Chris Caps. Next up will be from John McElveen. We've heard from John a ways back, episode 205, if I remember right, a story by the name of Infliction that Philip Oldham had narrated for us. Here's a little refresher about John for you. John M. Mickleveen is the author of the paranormal suspense novel Henoware, winner of the 2015 Drunk Druid Award in Ireland, for High Literary Merit and nominee for the 2015 Bram Stoker Award in the first novel category. He is also the author of two story collections, Inflictions and Jerks and Other Tales from a Perfect Man. And the well-received novelette, Got Your Back. A father of five daughters, he works at MIT's Lincoln Laboratory and lives in Haverhill, Massachusetts with his fiance, Roberta Colistani. And now, John McElveen's Make a Choice.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
2: I have to whiz, Christopher Seth said, squirming, as if a particularly large flea were chewing his ass. That's not humanly possible, said Joseph Seth, eyeing him in the rearview mirror. Matthew, the other Seth twin, gave a quick eye roll and returned his attention to the drop-down video screen. It's a long ride, but worth it, Joseph explained. You'll see. Nestled in Provincetown Harbor, Mayflower Heights, is about three miles from the tip of the Massachusetts panhandle a butt-numbing 110 miles from Boston by highway, though merely 50 as the seagull flies. Christopher released an irritated groan. For him, it felt like cross-country by horse and buggy. Julie Seth watched her son writhe. "'I think he really has to go,' she said. "'Maybe we could make a quick stop.' "'We stopped for him not 15 minutes ago,' Joseph practically whined. "'There's no such thing as a quick stop.' That's what happens when you get the short straw, Matthew said, holding his thumb and forefinger about an inch apart. That's so, Joseph asked, smirking. Yeah, Matthew said. My pipeline's fine. He wrapped Christopher in a firm headlock. Get your Peter beaters off me, Christopher said. He tried wrestling free, but Matthew lathered his forehead with an animated spittle-laden lap. Oh, God, residual penis, Christopher bellowed, wiping his forehead across the back of his father's headrest. They're not our children, said Julia. Some kind of alien intervention occurred in utero 15 years ago. Still up for two weeks of family bonding? Joseph asked. He turned the Yukon into a Burger King and found an empty spot. Christopher was barreling for the entrance before they even stopped. Wouldn't trade it for the world, she assured him. I still can't believe it's the same cottage. Five months earlier, a flyer appeared on the community board where Julie worked. For rent, 1500 per week. Call Ed Henry, extension 4147, the ad read. The resolution was grainy, but she recognized the Mayflower Heights cottage immediately. Her grandparents had once owned it, and she spent most of her childhood summers there. Ed seemed pleased by the coincidence. Matthew's head appeared over his father's right shoulder. Can we get some food, dude? Dude? Dad doesn't rhyme with food. Don't be ludicrous, Matthew said. Come on, I know you're aching to fossilize your arteries with fat-laden gobs of death served under the guise of meat and potatoes. Well, since you put it that way, said Joseph. The line was staggering. Julie suggested trying someplace else, but Christopher turned doleful brown eyes on her. And with a philosopher's air said, Mother, would you truly deprive your own flesh and blood, not to mention twins of the highest order, the right to indulge in mass-processed, preformed, deep-fried onion rings? Bacon-double cheeseburgers, corrected Matthew. Onion rings. They give you rot ass, Matthew said. Julie hushed them, appalled. We're in public, she said under her breath. It's true. He could gag a crap-eating dog. That's enough, Joseph said, mortified. A deep, hearty laugh erupted from behind them, causing them all to turn. Julie, not vertically blessed, felt like a child as she looked up to see the man's face. He was about six foot five, at least 16 inches taller than her, and ruddly handsome with untamed shoulder-length hair. He wore Levi's and a sleeveless gilly shirt over a well-toned body. He smelled musky, herbal and under it earthy yet thoroughly pleasing julie wanted to ask which cologne he wore but considered her humiliation should he answer none hey it's braveheart matthew said nudging christopher bring me wallace alive if possible did just as good said christopher in a passable scottish accent joseph glared at his sons paid for the meal and humbly led his family to an open table Julie settled into one of the formed plastic chairs, bothered by how close they were mounted to the table. "'I'm too fat for these chairs,' she said. "'Matronly,' Joseph corrected. Christopher grabbed a few fries from Matthew's carton as they doled out the food. "'Hey, scrotum, stop filching my fries.' "'Just a couple. I only have rings. That's the price you pay if you want to stink, you cesspool!' Julie rolled her eyes, and Joseph grinned sheepishly. The man who had been standing behind them in line laughed again with gusto, He seated himself at the neighboring table. Pardon my following you, but open tables are scarce. His voice poured, rich and smooth, like melted chocolate. Deep voice there, Darth. Twins, right? he asked. He's my clone. Asexual, though. Christopher, scolded Julie. No offense, said the man, his smile genuine and disarming. They have spirit. There's no foul in that. They have plenty of that, Joseph agreed. Where are you headed? he asked. Julie glanced at Joseph and the stranger said, I apologize. Too many hours behind the wheel makes one eager for conversation. I hear that, Joseph agreed. We've rented a cottage in P-Town for two weeks on Mayflower Heights. From Boston, he asked. That obvious, said Joseph. Mayflowers, Matthew said. Drive the car to the bar, it ain't fire, added Christopher. You can take the boy out of Boston, but you can't take Boston out of the boy. The man offered his hand. Name's Chris Tana, T-A-N-A. Most people call me Tana. Joseph shook and said, I'm Joseph, this is Julie, Matthew, and Christopher. Pleased. Those are good Christian names, Tana said. Yes, said Julie. Joseph's parents tease us for giving Jewish boys such blatantly Christian names. Tana flashed another winning smile. Well, be it Christian or Jewish, they are good, strong names. Matthew flexed like a comical bodybuilder. I'm heading that way myself. I was offered far too much money to do some stone work there, Tana said. He stood and lifted his tray. Hey, I bet you're a mason, said Matthew. Sometimes, said Tana with a wink. Maybe we'll bump into each other. They watched Tana leave without as much as a glance backwards. Odd, said Julie. Agreed, said Joseph. You see him snarf that whopper? asked Christopher. What do you make of him? Joseph asked Julie. Easy on the eyes in a Tarzan kind of way. Calm the juices, Jane. I didn't mean that way. That's disturbing, said Matthew. Oh, fine, she teased. He seemed friendly, but maybe a little too smooth. You know, Crocodile Dundee meets Barry White. The voice doesn't fit the man. Matthew said, I think he was looking for a nice kosher Jewish boy with the same name as him for a little pickle smooching. Christopher said, now that's disturbing. The Seths seemed perfect. Tana watched them exit the restaurant and climb into their Yukon. People were so damn easy, so willing to dole out information to complete and, yes, dangerous strangers, so unaware of how much they opened themselves up. Joseph Seth backed within inches of Tana's Camry, a thoroughly nondescript 2006, exactly how he liked it, and turned right out of the parking lot. He waited two minutes before taking off for his new destination, Mayflower Heights. Julie climbed out onto the short gravel driveway and stared mockishly at the New Englander with its screened-in porch and white cedar shakes. So typical, yet so unique. Thirty years, and it looks unchanged from the sun-soaked days when she ran up these steps, anxious for Grammy's homemade chowder. The screen door's spring would thrum to its limits as Grandpa yelled, Hold the door for Pete's sake! Then it would slam shut with a resounding crack. She hoped her sons would enjoy the beach as much as she had. You're the ideal age for this, she told them. Her antics would seem pitiable on today's high-speed standards. Just the frantic pace of modern video games astonished her. The hand-eye coordination was dizzying, especially to someone who peaked when Pong and Pac-Man were state-of-the-art. I have so many stories to share from my childhood, she gushed. "Uh, I have to uh feed the llamas, Matthew said. Yes, definitely the llamas, agreed Christopher. Surely they're famished. Okay, you clowns, Joseph said. Grab something besides yourselves. Laden with luggage, they made their way into the cottage. Nobody noticed the beige Camry parked 200 feet away on Route 6A. For two days, Tana watched, waiting. Matthew and Christopher stumbled out of the little cottage shortly after 6, Tuesday evening. They jogged away, jostling each other intent on the beach, shops, arcades, and a great deal of bikini appreciation. Julie and Joseph left shortly afterward, off for some selfish entertainment. Tana's gut told him that now was the best time, and his gut was uncanny. Tana stayed well back. At six five, he didn't blend in very well, despite the thickening crowd near the heart of Provincetown. Tracking the boys was easy, since they stopped often to girl watch. As daylight waned, the boys refocused on the shops and arcades and soon entered a candy shop. Tana waited outside, pretending to mull over tacky, high-priced Cape Cod and Provincetown trinkets and keeping his eye on the confection-seeking boys. They emerged, bags in hand, and a long red strawberry whip hanging from Matthew's mouth. Tana stepped toward them, looking introspective. Hey, it's Braveheart Dude, Matthew said, elbowing Christopher sharply. Tana looked up and said, well, hello, I figured I'd see you again. How's your vacation? Okay, so far, Christopher said. Great. How are your parents? Matthew said, They're tickled pink. They'd get excited watching mold grow. Tana laughed. Well, there's no place quite like Provincetown, right? As long as they don't make the mistake most people do and invite all the relatives. Nope. Just two weeks of us, the big bondathon, Matthew said with an eye roll. Bingo. Tana smiled and said, Don't underestimate family bonding. Some day your life may depend on it. The boys exchanged a silent glance. Stay safe, Tana said and waved. Masons have to hit the sack early. Rock on, said Christopher. Matthew groaned. Bet on it, Tana said. He rounded the corner of the nearest side street and broke into a sprint. Christopher gave the pinball machine a sharp thrust. A little too sharp. Tilt. Ha! I win gerbil dick, Matthew yelled. Puss tooth, retorted Chris. Puss tooth, Matthew asked. Christopher shrugged. A man in an orange vest veered past, glancing at his watch, reminding Christopher of their curfew. He checked his cell phone and backhanded Matthew's bicep. What? Shit, we got a hyperspace. It's eleven seventeen. We're screwed, Matthew said, taking off in a sprint. Wait at nearly eleven thirty. Matthew led the way up the porch stairs, flung open the screen door, and shot into the cottage. He came to an abrupt stop. Christopher collided with him, nearly sending both of them to the floor. What gives you stooge, Christopher complained, winded, fighting to maintain his balance. He saw why Matthew had stopped. Chris Tanna sat on the living room couch, appearing very at ease, with his legs splayed before him. He scraped his nails with a wicked-looking switchblade that reflected flashes of light as he maneuvered it. "'You're late,' said Tana. His voice was vibrant, emphatic, and too disturbingly friendly. "'Not very responsible, are you?' They watched Tana warily, alternating their gazes from his face to the switchblade. "'Where's our parents?' asked Christopher. Tana served a blinding smile. "'So serious,' he pouted mockingly. "'Lighten up. You'll get ulcers.' He stared at his fingernails again and nonchalantly nodded. "'Your parents are in there.' Christopher looked to the kitchen doorway He moved cautiously forward, feeling far enough from Tana to chance a look. Matthew stuck behind him, his eyes locked on Tana, who remained focused on his nails. Tana said, "'Unfortunately, your parents are a little tied up at the moment.'" Joseph and Julie Seth sat bound to chairs with duct tape, their mouths taped as well. They faced the doorway where Christopher and Matthew stood, their backs to the counter. Julie stared at her sons, terror lighting her eyes. Joseph Seth appeared unconscious, slumped in his chair. "'Blood trickled from his left temple, near his eye, in a rivulet. "'Dad's going to have a headache,' Tana said, inches behind them, making them jump. "'Pardon me. I didn't mean to startle you.' "'He moved past them so smoothly he seemed feline. "'What do you want?' Matthew's voice trembled. "'Tana seemed pleased. "'Just a little entertainment, but so we're on the same track. "'If either of you even try to run, Mom and Dad are dead. "'Boy Scouts promise.' He raised three fingers and gave a quick nod. Have a seat, Tana said, motioning to two chairs facing Joseph and Julie from the opposite side of the kitchen. Neither boy moved. Tana reached behind his back. Abracadabra, handgun, he said, displaying the barrel of the gun the way Vanna displays $250 vowels. This, I'm sure you bright young lads know from CSI or whatever other drivel you may watch, is a silencer. Ignore my requests, and I can become very convincing, and with no more sound than one of those silent farts you're so fond of. Christopher and Matthew obediently sidled into the chairs. Tana grabbed a canvas duffel bag from beside the refrigerator and set it near the boys. He withdrew a roll of duct tape, squatted, and began taping Matthew's legs to the chair. Christopher looked at the top of Tana's head contemplating driving his foot into Tana's chin but his leg betrayed his thoughts by twitching behind your knee is a very busy artery if you try what you're thinking i'll have you squirting like a gas pump you can yell but a bullet or a knife your choice is wonderful for silencing vocal cords do you want to take that chance he looked up christopher returned the stare as stoically as possible but his chin quivered divulging his fear Tana winked and taped Matthew's hands and arms behind the chair, and then went to work binding Christopher. He backed their chairs against the wall, still facing their parents. He rounded the table in the center of the room, pulled something from his pocket, and waved it under Joseph Seth's nose. "'Wake up, sunshine,' Tana said. Joseph pulled away from the smelling salts, opening confused eyes. He looked from Tana to Matthew to Christopher and to Julie. Finally comprehending, he yanked at his restraints, emitting angry, muffled protests." Tana placed the gun barrel squarely between Joseph's eyes, initializing a torrent of panicked, stifled cries from Julie. You should stop, he said to Joseph, and then repositioned the barrel on Julie's brow. You are killing your family. Joseph immediately stopped his protests. Returning the gun to the small of his back, he said, Thank you. Now that I have your attention, I imagine you'd like to know what this is all about. The fear was so palpable he could almost smell it. He sat on the edge of the table. All eyes were glued to him. You see, I get bored rather easily, so I invent new ways to entertain myself. You seem like a fun-loving family. All of the Seths started shifting eyes among each other. Tana gave an embellished sigh. Did I lose you already? He stood straight and spread his arms as if trying to share a simple point. We are going to play a little game, a game called Make a Choice. Tana actually felt the tension rise. He stared intently at Joseph and Julia and raised two fingers, a mocking peace sign. I noticed two things when we met the other day. First, your sons, though not identical, are clearly twins. Second, you both love them very much, and that is what makes this game so goddamn fun. He walked to Matthew and Christopher, though his words were still directed at the parents. This game takes 12 hours to play. I would love it to take longer, but I'm a busy guy with other commitments and I must leave by noon tomorrow. He put a hand on Matthew's head. And when I leave, either one of your sons, he paused and put his other hand on Christopher's head, or both of your sons will be dead. Julie started shaking her head frantically, tears welling from eyes ready to eject from their sockets. Joseph remained composed, but white-hot hatred emanated from him. Tana was truly enjoying this. Wait, I'm not finished, he said, raising a finger. This is the important part. Whether one or both of your children die is entirely up to you. He pointed to Julie and Joseph with both hands. You get to, come on, say it with me, make a choice. You're fucked, man, Matthew said bitterly. Tana went nose to nose with Matthew and said, most certainly, though not nearly as fucked as you. But let's not get off track. It's all very simple. Mr. and Mrs. Seth, you have 12 hours to decide which of your sons die. Or, he rose up and pointed to Matthew and Christopher, they both die. You won't get away with it. They'll find you, Christopher said. Who'll find me? Tana theatrically lowered his head as if waiting for a secret. I'm flattered you think you're my first, but you're not, by a long shot. But I do think you'll be my best one yet. Tana drew the shades. He moved to Julie, bent to her level, and said, The beautiful irony is, even if you don't decide who dies, you've still made a choice. Both die. Julie's eyes swam out of focus, rolled back, and she passed out. Beaming, Tana jumped up and pumped his fist. I love it when that happens. He brought out the smelling salts and coaxed Julie back. For the next 11 hours, you will all remain in the kitchen. This way, you will have a good last look at your son, or sons. It's now 10.07. 10.07. I'm a generous guy, so you have until 10.10 tomorrow morning. That's three free minutes. He laughed and left the room. Matthew and Christopher hadn't muttered a word in nearly two hours. They were looking at her, desperation and profound fear holding her gaze, the same thing they must see in her eyes. How could that bastard even think of something so inhumane? The death of one would be the death of the other, at least in spirit, and the death of either would split her heart in two. Her sons, dear God! Julie's stomach clenched and her vision wavered, threatening unconsciousness again. No, she had to remain strong for the boys. Why wasn't Joseph helping? Why wasn't he trying to save them? She turned to meet his eyes and hated him for what she saw there. Don't you dare give up, you fuck! She wanted to scream at him hit him, and tear that look out of his eyes. She glowered at him. You created them with me, god damn you. What about your vows? To love and protect? You're not holding up your part of the deal. We need to be protected. Not the 11 o'clock news. Not reduced to something people shake their heads at, shocked, appalled, rapt, and think, what a shame, and then go back to their tuna casseroles, whiskey sours, or cribbage games. Maybe amused, definitely entertained, but mostly unaffected. Christopher needed the toilet. He squirmed in his chair and looked at his parents, anguish etching his features. Joseph checked the clock and his nerves turned to ice. One twenty-seven a.m. The minute hand seemed to move like the second hand. Hey, Matthew yelled. Hey, my brother needs the bathroom. Tana entered, evidence of sleep clinging to his features. He looked at them one by one. His eyes stopped on Christopher. How we doing, lad? You appear a bit uncomfortable. Christopher locked his gaze on the floor. He needs the bathroom, Matthew said. "'I heard you,' said Tana. "'Your brother can talk. "'He's afraid. "'I want to hear it from him.' "'Tana moved within inches of Christopher's bowed head. "'Joseph saw Christopher's body tense, as if awaiting a blow. "'Do you need the bathroom, Christopher?' Tana asked. "'Please,' he barely whispered. "'I think not. "'I'd have to release you and then bind you up again. "'Too much trouble.' "'Tana checked his watch with embellished movements. "'Besides,' This won't take long. In slightly more than eight hours, you may not have to worry about it any longer. Matthew surprisingly shouted at Tana. Fuck you, you dick. The backhand was rattlesnake quick. Tana's hand was back to his side before Joseph knew his son had been struck. Julie flew into a rage, struggling to free herself from the restraints. Anger also boiled within Joseph, but a backhand was the least of their worries. He would save his energy for the right moment. He needed to be ready if it presented itself. This prick was cool and aloof, but surely not flawless. Tana would slip eventually, somehow. Matthew's cheek blossomed to a fiery glow that would darken and swell. His eyes brimmed, but Joseph knew, for Julia's sake, Matthew wouldn't allow himself to cry. What an impolite young man you are, Tana said. If I were your parents, I wouldn't want a child as rude as you. In fact, I think your disrespect should only simplify their decision. Tana looked smugly at Joseph, grabbed a fistful of Matthew's hair, and gave him an open-handed slap to the face that sounded like a bullwhip. It was a direct challenge that shook Joseph to the core and made his quandary all too clear. Tana had castrated him, rendered him impotent. Tana could perform any perverse desire his putrid mind conjured up, and there wasn't a damn thing Joseph could do. Panic blazed a searing stream up the center of his back, over his shoulders, down past his buttocks and into his legs. Like a trapped animal, Joseph threw every iota of himself into his attack. The tape had to give under his fury. The bones and sinews of his arms and legs would shear through it. Joseph tipped falling sideways until his head impacted the floor with a blinding flash and the tearing of claws at his temple. He tasted blood, yet somehow remained conscious. He saw Tana's boots as they approached. He braced for the kick he knew was coming, but it never came. Tana squatted on the floor near Joseph, displaying a satisfied smile. He said, as if confiding with a dear friend, Bet that brought you back down to earth. I was wondering how thick or thin your resolve was. He lifted Joseph and his chair with minimal effort. Don't be offended by the love taps I gave your son, but we need to know where we all stand in this little game. Julie's tears flowed freely, carrying with them her dignity and spirit. As if reading Joseph's earlier thoughts, Tana walked over to Julie, put a giant hand behind her head, and pressed her face directly into his crotch and pumped his hips perversely against her. He looked at the three Seth men and said, "'It appears that I'm winning.' get away from her, you fucking pig, Christopher sobbed. Very noble. One point for Christopher, Tana said. He gave a final thrust and pulled away. Joseph saw the dampness of Julie's tears on the man's crotch, and a dense blackness pushed through him, fueling his hatred and rage. Christopher felt as if his bladder would split. Twice he had cried out, only to hear a low chuckle from the living room. It was 4.12 a.m., and for nearly two hours his mother's gaze remained locked on some indistinct point on the floor. His father's gaze drilled the living room doorway, a more definable focus, but just as unmoving as his mother's. Another searing jolt ripped his abdomen and a spray of urine released. If he hadn't been taped to the chair, it would have doubled him over. Let it go, man. Stop torturing yourself, Matthew whispered. His face was unbalanced by an eggplant-colored swelling high on his left cheek. I can't, Christopher hissed between gritted teeth. Unable to withstand the pressure, it all let go with an anguished cry. Christopher sobbed as urine poured from him, flooding down his legs, over the chair and onto the floor. A victorious cheer rang from the living room. Tana emerged, a Cheshire Cat grin on his face. Do I hear music? Tinkle, tinkle, tinkle he sang almost effeminately fuck you christopher croaked humiliated flattered tana said and winked maybe later i'd figured you was a pedophile matthew challenged what's wrong you miss your daddy's dick tana roared with laughter genuinely amused he said you can play too i'll even invite your parents to watch Joseph Seth drilled Tana with a look so disturbing and seething it appeared to pause Tana momentarily. Composing himself, Tana rhythmically tapped his foot in the puddle of urine on the floor. I smell weakness, which can't help your case much, he said. He rubbed his hand briskly over Christopher's head as if he was a favorite nephew. Christopher gnashed his teeth at him, trying for his hand or perhaps a finger, just barely missing. Whoa, Cujo, Tana said, pulling back. Your parents should put you out of your misery. Isn't that what they do with rabid animals? Tana turned to leave, but stopped. What's that? he said, pretending to hear something. He leaned to Christopher. Did you say kill Matthew, not me? He stood back up, feigning concern. Is that the kind of loyalty one should expect from a twin brother? He shook his head and walked back to the living room. Christopher thought a little of the arrogance had left his step. The sounds of waste management tossing garbage cans about woke Tana up. He looked at his watch, thought about the boys in the kitchen, and smiled. He had to give the little shits credit. They had gumption. The intensity of the urine smell in the kitchen surprised him. The Seths were all haggard-looking, gaunt with dead expressions. "'Hello, kids,' he said merrily. "'See? I gave you an extra eleven minutes. I'm a nice guy. Add the three extra minutes I gave you last night. That's fourteen, which happens to be the ages of our men of the hour.' He clapped his hands like a game show host. What a bunch of fuddy duds. Well, the show must go on. He turned to Julie and yanked the duct tape from her mouth. Julie cried out, and little beads of blood soon gathered between specks of adhesive residue. Whew! that's going to leave a mark. Tana grimaced. He yanked the tape from Joseph, retrieved the roll from his duffel bag, and taped Matthew and Christopher's mouths. Neither boy protested. Same rules apply. Any noises I don't like, you've chosen both boys, simple as that. Now, please enter our specially designed silent chamber behind door number one, he said, motioning to the first bedroom door. He dragged Joseph's chair into the bedroom, and then Julie's. You have one hour to make your decision. You kids behave, he said, closing the door. Rot in hell, Julie said. Tana smiled. Too late, he said. Matthew turned away as Tana exited the bedroom. He considered begging for their lives, but he knew it would please the perverse worm. Matthew had prayed throughout the night, looking for inspiration. He found none. Tana's heavy tread approached. Matthew refused to look at him, certain he was up to some cruel task, but Christopher's muffled grunt startled him. Matthew looked at his brother's disheartened face, and then at Tana. "'What?' Tana asked. Another muffled question. "'Why?' asked Tana. Christopher nodded. After mild deliberation, Tana said, Why not? Nothing personal. I needed players. You met the criteria. Julie didn't want to think, feel, or hear. She just wanted to shut down, to curl up and sleep down in a deep, dark hole where nothing could get to her. She barely noticed when Tana moved them. She stared blankly at the floor and hadn't shifted the gaze since. Time, though so crucial, was irrelevant. There was no clock. We have to do something, Joseph said. She said nothing. She wanted silence, but it evaded her. Tana was talking to her sons beyond the door, his voice sounding too normal. Julie, for Christ's sake, Joseph hissed. He's lying, Julie said. He'll kill us all. I had the same thought, Joseph admitted. We can identify him. Julie finally raised her eyes to meet Joseph's "'Do you think for a minute he'd let three of us go? "'We're not going anywhere. "'We have no other hope.' "'Julie wanted to hurt him, to drive steel spikes through him. "'Are you going to decide which of our sons he murders? "'Can you make that choice?' she asked. "'I could never forgive you for choosing a son to die.' "'I could never forgive you for letting both die,' Joseph countered. "'It'd probably be better if neither lived.' "'How can you say that?' Joseph asked desperately.' How can you choose? Julie hissed. With so much disgust, Joseph pulled away. But Julie stopped his words with her eyes, knowing what he was going to say. But he wouldn't feel it for long. You bastard, she sneered with so much acid, her voice sizzled. Five seconds of that kind of betrayal would be too long. I refuse to sentence either of my sons to death. Then they'll both die. His eyes burned. I hate you, Julie growled. She started crying uncontrollably. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. She looked at her husband and saw a stranger, a sallow and repugnant parasite. He and Tana were the same, evil and contemptible, so willing to take the lives of her sons. They sat in silence. Neither knew how long. It'd have to be the emotionally weaker one. He wouldn't survive without the other one, said Joseph quietly. Julie knew he meant soft-hearted Christopher. She couldn't believe he chose. She wanted to rip his heart out. Yet inside, she knew that poor, logical Joseph was on autopilot. He, the accountant, was taking tally and things weren't adding up. His eyes were dead, empty and hopeless. Concentration camp eyes. No, Julie whispered. Knock, knock, Tana said. Time's up. He dragged Julie and Joseph back into the kitchen. Terrified eyes exchanged looks all around. Matthew and Christopher, ashen and diminished, looked abandoned. I love you both, Julie said with a weak, cracking voice. Shh, shh, Tana moved to Julie's side with unbridled enthusiasm. No time for sentiments, because you know what time it is? That's right, it all comes down to this. The big finale, Final Jeopardy. Yes, it's time to make... "'A choice!' Tana stood, arms spread, and a huge Bob Barker smile on his face. The smile faded, and he dropped his arms. "'What deadbeats,' he said. "'Joseph Seth said, "'Let them go. If you have to kill someone, kill me.' Tana looked incredulous, as if Joseph were a child who had just been monstrously defiant. "'I'm awed by your cowardice. You're not getting out of this that easily, bucko. "'But this suspense is a killer.' So, speaking of killer, who did you choose? He said, as if asking what flavor ice cream he liked. Neither Joseph nor Julie spoke. Come on, out with it. We heard you talking. They're just dying to find out, if you'll excuse the pun. Still, no one spoke. Tana moved in front of the boys. A switchblade popped open, and all four sets jumped in unison. So you chose both, Tana said. No, Joseph shouted. Who? "'Tana asked, sliding the blade softly down Matthew's arm. "'No answer.' "'Julie was shaking, her chin quivering, "'and her arms twitching as if on the verge of hypothermia. "'Who?' Tana hollered. Ten seconds or they both take it in the throat.' "'Joseph said something. "'Tana rushed to him and leaned close. "'What was that?' he asked. "'No,' whined Julie. "'Joseph stared at the refrigerator. "'Did you say Christopher?' Tana persisted or was it Matthew? Nothing. Who? Tana roared. Joseph said something. Tana jumped up, his arm raised skyward. Christopher it is, he said, as if awarding the winning bid. Christopher and Matthew stared at their father, both wide-eyed. Joseph dropped his head and wailed. Julie looked at her sons, shaking her head in denial, in agony. Tana extracted a small silver can and a rag from his duffel bag, folded the rag, and poured the contents of the can onto it. Ether, if you hadn't already guessed, Tana explained. He placed the rag over Joseph's nose. What are you doing? Joseph cried. Do you really want to watch? Tana asked. He's going to kill us all, Julie said through anguished tears. I told you! Within moments, Joseph and Julie were slumped in their chairs. Julie awoke to a searing pain in her temples and an awful taste in her mouth. It was dark, but she could see the form near her. She sat up and looked at her arms, as if they were a newly formed part of her body, felt ridges in her wrists where the tape had bound her, and then remembered. She shook her husband fiercely. Joseph! Oh God, the boys! Joseph sprang upright, looking around frantically. He cringed as the ether headache slammed him. Wait, he said. He held Julie back with a straightened arm. Listen. There were voices from behind the closed door. It's the TV. Tana might still be here. I need a weapon. Anything, Joseph whispered. He got up, quietly opened the closet door, grabbed the hanger rod from the supports, and threw the loose hangers on the bed. Joseph opened the bedroom door slowly. The hallway and kitchen beyond were dark, except for the telltale flashing of the television on the walls. Inching ahead, they turned the corner and peeked into the living room. Matthew and Christopher were slumped in their chairs, facing the television. It was impossible to tell if their eyes were open, or if their chests moved. Joseph cautiously entered the room, taking everything in. Watch behind us, he said. Another step, and Matthew jerked to attention. Julie stood, unmoving, praying for a sign from Christopher. Tana gone? Joseph asked. Matthew nodded, and Christopher's leg twitched. "'Alive!' Julie rushed forward and touched their faces, their arms, raining kisses on them, but not totally believing. Joseph freed the boys, and Julie undertook the painful task of removing the duct tape from their mouths, as Joseph called the police. Hours and countless questions later, the police were coming up empty, and some even seemed skeptical, despite the bruise on Matthew's face and Julie's tape abrasion. No Chris Tannas existed in the database— Plenty of Chris Tanners, but none matched the description. One officer noticed, with implied accusation, that Chris Tanner was an anagram for anarchist, and satanic could also be derived from it. The sergeant in charge felt it was no coincidence. Neither did Joseph. The police showed a composite sketch to business owners. The few that recognized Tanna only remembered his height and good nature. Joseph figured he wouldn't be found. Tana and his easy arrogance had probably spent years terrorizing people and melting into the woodwork. The building inspector produced no pulled permits for masonry work, and no recent outdoor masonry work was evident anywhere in Provincetown. Matthew and Christopher spoke little that evening, answering questions with little more than affirmative and negative grunts. Matthew maybe said five words to Joseph. Christopher, none at all. With little persuasion by the police chief, The Seths were roomed at the Anchor Inn beach house, even with the summer crowd. The cottage was cordoned off as evidence, not that anyone wished to go back. Alone in their hotel room, the Seths sat in near silence. Very few words were uttered. They all knew what the others were feeling. Words were worthless. They got out of it alive. It turned out positively, considering all that happened, Joseph figured, yet he was constantly aware of their eyes on him, especially Christopher's, averting when he looked back. An officer knocked on the door, startling them. He said, the sergeant has more questions. He'd like you at the police station at 9 a.m. Just me? Or all of us? Joseph asked. Your choice, said the cop. Christopher laughed. It was not
1: a good sound. That was John Mikkelveen's Make a Choice, as read by Josh Roseman. Josh Roseman, not the trombonist, the other one, has a new collection out, The Clockwork Russian and other stories, bringing together his best-published work from the last six years, including appearances in Asimov's Escape Pod and the Doonstief Audio Fiction Magazine, Find him online at com and follow him on Twitter or Instagram at listener42. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show was produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.